What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. So before we start, I was hoping that I could just ask a simple question, which is, if you were one of the four Trump trials, like, personality-wise, which one do you think you'd be? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I'm very serious. I'd be Jack Smith. Oh, really? Why? Oh, <laughs> I'm actually not that serious, but <laughs> but I kind of am obsessed with, like, how stone-faced he is and how the whole vibe that he gives to the entire trial. Mm -hmm. Aaron, what about you? I would say Georgia. I mean, I just like the fact that there are a bunch of people who are who are now going through this and there's like so many different dynamics and the racketeering side of things just like makes it so much more complex and and I just think that's who you are as a person. Yeah, I like I like <laughs> complicated the with lots of I different like, personalities. Yeah, like digging through all these different things and trying to piece things together and that just feels like it's that's more me. Nice. I like this spread here because I feel that I would be the classified documents case. Oh, ah, there we because go. Because I'm a Florida girl <laughs> and because I have a tendency to steal books from other people and <laughs> forget that I have them or maybe not give them back and so I can kind of relate. <laughs> Before we go any further into this Trump trial personality test, I just want to introduce things here. Today is Friday, February 16th. I'm Martine Powers, and this is the start of a new weekly chat that we're going to be doing here on the show on most Fridays throughout the campaign year. We found that there's just so much news to cover in five days of the week, and we need a time to talk through it all. So we're going to call these Friday episodes The Campaign Moment. We have Aaron Blake here, who is the author of the Campaign Moment newsletter. Aaron, are you good with us stealing your title for I, the name of I this segment I'll, every week? I'll let you guys do it just this once. Actually, maybe we can just do it every week. Yes, yes. So, Aaron, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the Campaign Moment and what you think that means. Yeah, so the, the idea with the campaign moment is we're not just going to inundate you with a daily newsletter about the minutia of what's happening on the campaign. It's when there is a big moment, we are going to break it down. So it's not a daily newsletter. It's an occasional one. It's once a week, twice a week sometimes. When there is something significant happening, we are going to break it down, tell you what's important about it, make sure that you're up to speed on the very important things that are happening in this campaign, and also the things that are happening that aren't strictly about the campaign, but have a relationship to it. Thank you, Aaron. And today we also have a guest with us, Leanne Caldwell, who is a political reporter here at The Post and also the co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us this week. Hi, Martine. Thanks for having me. So, Aaron, to start things off, this felt like a particularly newsy week with a lot of potential campaign moments. But I'm curious for you, what was the big campaign moment of the week? Well, it's the, the thing that we already talked about, and it's the thing that we're going to be talking about probably plenty on this show, and that's the Trump trials, the two different hearings that we had at the same time on Thursday. And those two different hearings took place in New York and in Georgia. 
So, Aaron, I'm hoping that you can just talk about first the New York trial and what was so significant about that moment. Yeah, so the New York trial is probably the more boring of the two that we had yesterday. It, it kind of confirmed what we already knew. It was setting the stage for when the trial would actually take place. That date had previously been set for March 25th, and it was confirmed that that will be the case over some very strenuous objections from the Trump team. And so basically what that means is we will see a former president for the very first time ever actually facing criminal charges, a trial, and it'll take place during the 2024 campaign. We don't necessarily know that these other cases are going to move forward before Election Day. They're they're very much in flux. But at least with this one, the hush money case dating back to 2016, we will have a trial barring some kind of a shift in these other dates that forces New York to move. My question is... How much will this actually feel like a significant moment, considering that this is the case that a lot of people have described as the weakest against Trump? I mean, we're talking about this hush money case that dates back to 2016, before Trump was even president. We have these other cases that are debating questions that are kind of central to democracy and, you know, Trump's uh, performance as president. But then there's this random case about Stormy Daniels and will people be paying attention and will that have any influence on voters is what I'm wondering. Yeah, I I would agree with the characterization that some have put forward. I I did not coin this, but uh, they've called it kind of the runt of the litter. Um, That's not to diminish. (laughs) that's That's not to diminish the very serious legal issues that are involved here, but they are less serious from a legal standpoint. They are things that polls show Americans are generally less concerned about. And I think the fact that it's the one that's taking place first, it may be the only one that takes place for a long time, it may actually play into Trump's hands given he's pitching these things as being witch hunts and, and not that significant. Yeah, I think that it, I think that this trial is really just going to take place in the backdrop, like in the background of what's happening. We've also already seen Donald Trump in courtrooms multiple times this year and over the past several months. And I feel like people are quite confused on which trial is which. And with this one having the least amount of impact and national security into his role as president, I think that it's not going to pack much of a punch. But I guess as we get to a general election, I'm obviously more interested in, in the other trials and where that goes and if Trump is successful in delaying them long enough. Mm-hmm. To your point about how confusing it is, I, I don't know if you guys saw there was this like photo that was shared online of like a calendar with the potential dates of trials and hearings and pretrial hearings for like these these different court cases along with the election calendar and looking at this calendar just felt like looking at a kind of conspiracy theory board of all the like strings going everywhere it was just it looked like a mess and i think that is part of the reason why a lot of americans feel very confused by all of these cases happening at once. Yeah, and if you look at that and it's overwhelming to you, just imagine somebody who doesn't, you know, talk about and write about the news every single day. Mm -hmm. There's a number that I keep coming back to on this. And I think we all kind of undersell how unfamiliar American voters are with all of this. There was a poll late last year that basically asked people their familiarity with these criminal charges. 60% of people basically said they had not heard much about the Trump indictments. When these Hmm. go to trial, when these are more earnestly consumed as news by the American people, that's when judgments are going to be made, and that's when things can really shift. Interesting. 
I also want to talk about the Georgia case. Aaron, I know that you were watching that. This had to do with Fonnie Willis, the DA there, and questions around a relationship with another prosecutor. Like, what was this proceeding about and why is it relevant to whether President Trump committed a crime? Yeah, I, I think that there's a tendency to distill this Fonnie Willis thing down to affairs and sex lives and things like that. It's not really about that. Tangentially, it is. Basically, the issue is the defendants in the Georgia case are trying to get her disqualified because they allege she improperly benefited. The way she improperly benefited, allegedly, is that she hired a prosecutor Nathan Wade, whom she engaged in a relationship with, and they went on vacations together, and Nathan Wade paid for these things. The pushback on that from Wade and Willis is that Willis basically reimbursed him with cash. There's no documentation of that. But basically, the key element here is, did the money that Nathan Wade was being paid after Fannie Willis hired him find his way into her pockets, essentially? And can you make an argument that she Mm. improperly benefited from these vacations? It's a difficult legal argument, but more practically speaking, having this hearing is an embarrassing thing for Fonnie Willis. It confirms Trump's ability to put the spotlight on prosecutors, which has been his goal in all of these cases. And uh, and I think that the fact that they're, they're going through this right now, I think, uh, is a preview of the very uneasy and kind of all over the place nature of these cases moving forward. The legal argument aside, you have to question, like, what was Fonnie Willis thinking? Um, because yeah. this is also judged in the court of public opinion. And If anyone has been a Trump watcher over the knows anything about him um, since his rise to the presidency and throughout his campaign, he will do anything. He finds a little kernel of truth and totally uses that to his advantage to destroy people's reputations, to destroy sometimes people's careers. And so, you know, it is very careless, I feel feel when she has this. And it's also a distraction for Fannie mm-hmm. Willis. She's supposed to be focused on this massive racketeering case against the former president and and people associated with him. And now she has to come defend herself. And the Trump people, since this broke, have been sending me unsolicited text messages saying, this is going to take her down. We have it. Like, this is really going to take this case down. And so they... I love that they're texting you that directly. <laughs> like, <laughs> live tweeting or what's happening in this trial to you. And so they're really, um, you know, they are looking for ways to undermine any sort of strength that any prosecution has against him. And they think that they found something significant. Whether they did in the legal component or not, that's a whole other question. But they think it has definitely damaged her. Because going into this, I mean, I had the impression that this was arguably the strongest case of all the uh, indictments against Trump. I mean, this is about election interference in Georgia, something that I think people who were following the news in the weeks after the 2020 election, like, will remember there was the tape of Trump calling Secretary of State, asking for the, like, 11,000 whatever votes. You know, like, we, we all know that. And it just feels like that this case... Fonnie Willis aside, would have stood a really good shot of kind of speaking to these issues that voters are worried about and calling into question like Trump's behavior after 2020 and this like central question to whether or not he should be president again. But it's all getting like muddled in this Fonnie Willis stuff. 
Yeah, and the other thing that I keep coming back to is there was another Fonnie Willis disqualification hearing. There was a situation in which she raised money for a campaign opponent, somebody who wound up being a campaign opponent in the general election of the state senator who is now Georgia's lieutenant governor named Burt Jones. She held a fundraiser even though Burt Jones was a target of her investigation. He was one of the fake electors, so-called fake electors in Georgia. And she was rebuked by a judge. This was July of 2022. I think to Leanne's point, the idea that she would kind of allow anything like this to put the spotlight on her and and raise any questions about her, regardless of how legally substantiated the disqualification effort is, it's a misstep. And I think it's something that certainly is a setback, at least in the public relations sense. But she was pretty defiant in court. I mean, I just saw a little bit of it, but like she, the vibe I was getting was not like abashed. So um, you and Mr. Wade met in October 2019 at a conference? That is correct. And I think in one of your motions, you tried to implicate I slept with him at that conference, which I find to be extremely offensive. I stayed at that conference. Mr. Wade was my teacher. I did not meet him. Yeah, she absolutely pushed back very hard on yesterday. She says, be clear here, I'm not the one who is on trial. Your office objected to us getting um, Delta records for flights that you may have taken with Mr. Wade. Well, no, no, no. I object to you getting records. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. Anything else doesn't matter is essentially her point, you know, but this but she is involved in this case that she has to focus on and she has to defend herself. And of course, there was one other significant moment from these Trump trials on Thursday, except it didn't actually happen in the courtroom. It was outside of the courtroom where former President Donald Trump made yet again comments about NATO and his distaste for non-paying NATO members. The NATO countries have to pay up. They're not paying up. They're not paying what they should. And they laugh at the stupidity of the United States of America, where we have a guy that gives $60 billion every time somebody comes and asks for it. When we get back, we will unpack why Trump has become fixated on talking about NATO and what that means for the election. So Aaron and Leanne, we just heard these comments that Trump made on Thursday about NATO and his belief that uh, there are NATO members who are not uh, pulling their weight. Why is Trump talking about NATO now? And like, what has been the reaction to this new kind of zag that he's on about him standing up against the non-paying NATO countries? The split screen that we've seen here has been pretty remarkable. If you look at how NATO member states are responding to this, they are very concerned. They have seen Trump say things somewhat like this, but, you know, he hadn't said, well, I would encourage Russia to attack them if they don't pay up. That's the new part here. And I think that next to everything else kind of moves the ball significantly forward. 
Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO secretary general, said this undermines all of our security and puts American and European soldiers at increased risk. A senior German lawmaker who's uh, who's pretty high up in the government there said everyone should watch this and understand that Europe has no choice, maybe, to defend itself. We have to manage this because everything else would be surrender and uh, self-abandonment. And then we see the Republican foreign policy hawks in Congress, the Marco Rubios, the Senator Lindsey Grahams, Tom Tillis, uh, Tom Cotton, basically giving Trump a pass on this. They, they said they had no concerns about it. They suggested Trump was just saying things and that he didn't really mean it. And that is a really big shift from how they talked about these things before. Foreign policy is the one issue on which some members of the Republican Party have repeatedly been willing to challenge Trump and try and move things in a different direction. Lindsey Graham, especially, that has been his kind of one very principled issue. And the fact that they've kind of lost the will to fight Trump on this and and given him a pass, I think really says a lot about how much Trump just dominates the party and kind of wears his opponents down. Yeah. Speaking of Lindsey Graham specifically, um, he pulled out of what is the Munich conference, security conference that is happening right now. Was that a cat? <laughs> it was my cat. <laughs> I have a very old cat Hello, who cat. meows constantly. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think your cat has strong feelings about NATO there and whether and Lindsey uh, Graham. U.S. leaders should be. I, yeah, think, exactly. I think that uh, my cat Samson is excited for me to tell this about how in these negotiations over the border and Ukraine aid, Lindsey Graham was so frustrating to the negotiators that Kirsten Cinema started calling him privately the chaos monster. <laughs> um, what? And that was a term that she actually yes, used. Yes, it's the best term I might have heard all year. Lindsey Graham kept sh- just moving the goalposts, moving the goalposts. They did everything they could to keep him on board in these negotiations over border security in Ukraine. And his staff was at the table and he just kept shifting. And Kirsten Cinema started calling him privately the chaos monster, which is wow. now actually the greatest depiction of what Lindsey Graham is, especially with his latest shift on this issue of NATO in Ukraine. I mean, Aaron said that foreign policy was the one thing that Lindsey Graham was controlled on and had had principles. But now that this conference is happening and the CODEL that is going from Washington, the members of Congress are calling it the McCain CODEL. This was one of his most important things was to preserve NATO and uh, Lindsey Graham, and, and to be clear, this friend. is th- this is the Munich yes, Security, the Munich conference, Security where conference, yes, global leaders show up. Where and Zelensky talk about is how to going to be, um, where NATO members are going to be, where this is their annual rah rah. We are still a strong entity, and now you have um, get, getting it back to Donald Trump is threatening to blow it up, and it's going back to that same thing that people always used to say about Donald Trump. Oh, don't take what his words literally he just speaks in you know seriously not literally seriously not literally (laughs) yes but you know how long can you keep (laughs) using that excuse (laughs) well and i do think that like looking at the trump presidency a like this is an idea that he has been like most ideologically consistent on if that makes sense like the idea of you know America first like we are not responsible for other countries problems like we just need to be looking out for ourselves the fact that things that he didn't successfully achieve during his presidency pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal 
pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, like that he has a demonstrated track record of eliminating America's commitments to other countries. And that this does feel like a thing that he, you know, one could perhaps take literally. 100%. Just because he hasn't done it in his four years in the presidency doesn't mean that he didn't try to. There was reporting that he talked about pulling out of NATO privately uh, in 2019, 2018 even. There were people around him that would pull him back from stuff like this. People like Lindsey Graham, people in the administration who shared that kind of a worldview. Those people are not going to be around in a second Trump term if he's reelected. And so it creates a situation where the guardrails are down. And if Donald Trump does indeed want to pull out of NATO, does indeed, you know, want to wreck shop in ways like he did in these comments, there's not going to be somebody there to check him and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. And I think that's something that these Republicans who are downplaying these comments really need to contend with. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge here, you know, as I was getting in the car this morning to come here to do this interview, saw the news that Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader in Russia, has died in Russian prison. He was the arguably the most outspoken critic of Russia, of Putin. And I think that just kind of shows you the stakes of emboldening Russia in this moment and what really matters here. Yeah, and it's the it's the second thing this week that I would put in that category. The other one being House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner coming out and citing a, a, a national security threat, kind of a very vague, ominous statement that, according to reporting, is it has to do with some kind of a space capability involving Russia. There is a very significant move away from combating Russians' foreign influence in the Republican Party. It, it has to do with the Ukraine funding. And yet we still get reminded of the ways in which Russia does loom as a very significant geopolitical foe. The, the number one geopolitical foe, as Mitt Romney once put it. And so it creates a situation where these Republicans who are saying we shouldn't fund Ukraine, that we should focus on our own borders, they're kind of taking a risk here. What what happens if Russia does push further than Ukraine? What happens if some of these things about Russia's influence come true? And then you also have someone very popular on the right, Tucker Carlson, who's in Russia, interviewed Vladimir Putin and now is doing videos about how great Russian grocery stores are and the cheap prices of groceries in Russia. And so, I mean, how great are these grocery stores? I like I would need to see a picture of some of these aisles to get a sense of like where they land on the great or not great grocery. <laughs> yeah, I yes, it's it's just you know, the politics are all mixed up and you know, but Tucker Carlson has a huge following and Donald Trump has has adopted many of the things that Tucker Carlson says about Russia and the West and NATO. I want to move on to another topic while we have Leanne. I know you have to go in a few minutes for an appointment, um, but very briefly, we saw the results from the New York special election to replace former Congressman George Santos and Democrats won a seat in the House. Tell me just like top line takeaways. What is significant about this to you? This is such an interesting race. You know, Republicans especially say these circumstances were quite unique. This is a district that Biden won by eight points in 2020. They say that the man who won, Tom Suozzi, has high name recognition because he was a former member of Congress. He was a mayor in the district before. They say that the snow 
depressed turnout for Republicans who like to vote on Election Day. Now, all of those things are true, but they only tell part of the story, which is, yes, um, Joe Biden won in 2020 by eight points in 2020, but George Santos won by eight points in 2022, and now Tom Suozzi won by eight points just this (laughs) week. And so this is, you know, Republicans say that this is not a warning sign, but when you take a step back and you look at the off-year special elections in 2023 and local elections in Virginia. You have um, the governor of Democratic governor of Kentucky. Democrats have done quite well, despite Joe Biden's very low approval ratings. And so I think while you can't really look at this as how things are going to play in 2024, Democrats say that it does absolve some of the hand-wringing that has been going on. Um, But again, Mm. you know, seven months until November is an eternity in politics. Just just flagging nine months until November. I don't know. Nine, nine. Thank you. (laughs) What month are we in? (laughs) What is time? What is time? At this point, it feels like about uh, three lifetimes. (laughs) Um, And Leanne, I know that you have to go now um, to head to an appointment, but thank you so much for for being here. Thank you. I am sorry I have to leave, but... Have fun for the rest of the time without me. We will. <laughs> we'll try. Um, <laughs> and Aaron, I want to stay with this topic for a, a little bit longer. You know, this question of what can we learn from this one special election, and specifically when it comes to immigration, because Tom Swazi, I mean, this was the biggest target of attacks against him, whether he was soft on the border and not concerned or appropriately concerned about border security, which we know is like what Republicans want to have as the message right now. Talk to me about the attacks against him and how he combated that. Yeah. So look, this is one 435th of the country that just voted. So, you know, keep that in mind as we look for broad generalizations about what this says about the national political environment. At the same time, as far as areas of the country where an immigration message would seem to possibly work for Republicans, this is very much that place. The influx of migrants in uh, the New York area, especially the New York City area, is a very big concern to New York voters. You know, there was a poll late last year that showed in the suburbs, which is this is kind of a suburban district in Nassau County and part of Queens, voters said that migrants were a burden rather than a benefit by a 56 to 22 margin. That is a Mm. a very significant margin. And so Republicans focused on a comment from 2022 in which Swazi talked about having kicked ICE out of Nassau County when he was the county executive there. Apart from that, though, Swazi has a pretty moderate record on immigration. He's, you know, did a resolution that supported ICE in 2019. He did a a grand compromise that he attempted with a Long Island Republican around that time. And so he had things to fight back with that he was kind of this guy who wasn't taking the border seriously. And I think there is a very good question about whether that is transferable to the rest of the Democratic Party. This is a much bigger liability for President Biden right now than it was for Tom Suozzi, according to the polls. And so the question becomes, was that because Suozzi just messaged this very effectively and and Biden hasn't so far? Or is it a situation in Mm -hmm. which this is just an unusual candidate and we can't really apply this message elsewhere? 
But also the idea that he kind of acknowledged those attacks and really spoke to the thing that I think a lot of people are feeling right now, that like the situation on the border is untenable and not kind of taking the more progressive stance of like, no, Republicans are just trying to make this out to be a problem that isn't truly a problem, you know, that these are sustainable numbers of people going through the border and that we're able to handle it, but that he kind of spoke more, I don't know, like face on about like, yeah, it's not a great situation. And that's why we're trying to come up with solutions and Republicans aren't playing ball with us. Yeah. The moment that really stands out for me on this was Republicans have run ads basically saying that the border is an invasion. This is a word that Mozzie Pillip, Mm -hmm. the Republican nominee used. It's a word that Republicans have increasingly used to cite the crisis on the border. And Mm -hmm. Tom Suozzi, you know, he basically said, yeah, it may well be an invasion. He did not object to the, the use of that word. Oh, interesting. The idea that a Democrat would not object to that word, if you had told me that just a couple of years ago, I would have said yeah. that's crazy. That It just shows kind of the evolution of the party. And I think the willingness of Democrats to kind of allow their candidates to have this more border hawkish message without pushing back on them. And so I think it's a situation in which you're likely to see, we've certainly seen the Democratic Party move toward the right on border security measures. That was a part of the Senate deal that ultimately fell apart. But I think that this will push them even more in that direction because Tom Suozzi's win suggested that that is going to help them potentially mitigate this problem for them. Oh, interesting. So, Aaron, before we wrap up our conversation today, I do want to get to one last topic that I know is near and dear to both of our hearts, <laughs> which is Taylor Swift and her intersection with the I didn't know which direction universe. you were going to go with that, but I'm glad you did. I'm glad I sold it and that you uh, <laughs> might have been genuinely surprised. So. I feel like I've been paying attention to this question of, like, whether or not Taylor Swift is going to endorse President Biden. Was that going to happen before or after the Super Bowl? If the the Chiefs won, was it going to be this big moment? And I know you've been reporting a little bit on that. But I also just want to shout out the reporting of a couple of our colleagues, Ashley Parker and Kara Vogt, who co-wrote this great story that I thought was fascinating about how the Biden campaign is trying to figure out the right way to nudge Taylor Swift into considering an endorsement because they don't want to ask outright uh, because they know that that's not how you get Taylor Swift to do things is by actually asking her um, and that they've been inundated with all these suggestions of like, well, maybe you can talk to this celebrity and get this celebrity to ask. Or maybe, you know, like, do you guys know anyone in common with Taylor Swift? And like, maybe that's the in here for the endorsement. Um, I just think it's a hilarious world of um, all these like old politicos trying to figure out how to influence Taylor Swift. (laughs) This is the supposed deep state plot to get Taylor Swift to endorse President Biden, who, by the way, she endorsed in 2020. And by the way, she has endorsed Democrats before. Like the idea that Taylor Swift is going to endorse a Democratic is not news. It's going to happen at some point, almost undoubtedly. And the idea mm-hmm. that they need to, there's some kind of a psyop going on here that the you know Defense Department is using Taylor Swift in some way. It's just, it's remarkable. And it, I think it shows kind of how things have gone off the deep end in certain parts of this country right now. But to be clear, like, that's a serious thing that you're hearing passed around in conservative political circles, that there is this, like, grand conspiracy, not only for the, you know, endorsement from Taylor Swift, but also was the Super Super Bowl rigged in favor of the Chiefs, again, in this, like, kind of 
complicated attempt for Biden to get support of Swift in the aftermath of a successful Super Bowl win. It's just it's so complicated. Yeah. And and, and the thing is, when it when it started, I was immediately curious how much this is going to penetrate. There are certain figures, influencers in the conservative movement who are willing to say pretty much anything. Everything is a deep state conspiracy. They don't have to have any substantiation for these things. They just kind of throw them out there and, you know, wait to see if people believe them. And it seems like a significant number of people do believe this. There was a poll this week from Monmouth University, which asked people if they believe there is a covert government effort to get Taylor Swift to help President Biden win re-election. 32% of Republicans believed that was the case. Of Republicans who had actually heard about this, which is about half of them, they were about evenly split on whether this covert government effort existed. I think that speaks to kind of the conspiratorial undercurrents, the belief in the deep state that really is so prevalent in the Republican Party right now. And it's not just this that that applies to. It's a whole host of anything, you know, things like COVID vaccines and and things like Mm -hmm. that. And this is what all of these you know, more serious minded Republican lawmakers are having to contend with. These are members of their base. These are very loud members of the Republican Party base, and they have to mine those portions of the party in the Trump era. And so I think this is kind of a it it epitomizes that dynamic that exists in the Republican Party today. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really smart point. Well, on that note, Aaron, thank you so much for being here. It was great to talk with you. And I'm so excited to do this next week and in the coming weeks after that. Yes, it was great. Thank you so much. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. And also make sure you actually sign up for the Campaign Moment newsletter. And you can find the link to that in our show notes and at postreports.com. We will also have a link there to uh, subscribe to Leanne's wonderful newsletter, The Early 202. So definitely check that out. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thank you so much for listening. Today's show is produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon, and it was edited by Renita Jablonski. The other members of our team include Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Lucy Perkins, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Bishop Sand, Renny Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, Peter Bresnan, Allison Michaels, and Alahe Izadi. I'm Martine Powers. We're going to be off for President's Day on Monday, but we'll be back on Tuesday with more stories from The Washington Post. Have a great weekend. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.